My name is Daniel, uh, and I, uh, I serve at Park Slope Community Church, where Logan is the lead pastor. We're giving him a much-needed break, and I'm so glad to be back with you guys. Um, when I was in ninth grade, I was given the opportunity of a lifetime. I was asked to be the play-by-play caller for a local Pop Warner football team, which was always my dream. I got to be John Madden and Al Michaels on the speakers. And I got decently, by my own opinion, decently good at the job. And before one game, one parent asked me, they said, hey, I think we should do the Pledge of Allegiance before the game. And I said, you know, no problem. We'll do the Pledge of Allegiance. So there's about two to 300 people in the crowd. And I say, everybody rise for the Pledge of Allegiance. Everybody does. And I say, I pledge allegiance and freeze. And it occurs to me in that moment that I actually don't know the Pledge of Allegiance. I've said it every day, but I don't actually know it unless everybody does it with me and like helps me. And I had two options. I, you know, I'm on the speakers. I could mumble my way through it and everyone can kind of get through it for me and I would save the embarrassment. Or I could just abandon the, emis- the mission. And the next thing that came out of my mouth after I said I pledge allegiance to was, and you may be seated. That was what I said next. And it was like, you know how the slides person at church, whenever they make one mistake, everyone looks back at them and it's like mortifying. That's what it was like with 300 very angry parents just looking up at the call box. And that was the first moment in my young adult life that I think I ever asked the question like, God, what the heck, dude? I thought we like were cool. Where were you in that moment? Like, why did you not help me? You couldn't have sent a spirit down to help me with the Pledge of Allegiance? And that was a question, and that's, I say that jokingly, but that was a question that I would go on to ask many times after that. Like, God, where were you? I have it in the moments when I go down into the subway and I see the train that I missed and the next train is 19 minutes away. I'm like, God, what happened to you? But I, we have this moment, right, where we ask this question, where is God? All, all of us, if we're honest, we have asked at least Every once in a while, God, where are you? Even people who, who don't believe kind of have this tendency to say, well, where is your God? Whether that's in times of trials or hardships or heartache, we've all asked the question of where is God? John Tyson, who's a pastor in Manhattan, he diagnosed a problem like this. He said, we all ask the question, where is God? But we build lives that don't take into account a desire for him. You see, John Tyson, what he's saying there is all of us somehow have this bone in us that has no problem asking, where is God? But very few of us take into account, am I doing things God wants me to do? And so we are in this series, we're calling it A City on a Hill, where we are looking at, in the book of Acts, the very first Christian community, the first Christian church after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven. And we're looking at how they form their church life together, and we're asking, how can we model our church life, both corporately and individually, to reflect that that we see in the book of Acts? And We're going to ask ourselves, are we living lives that make it feasible for God to thrive in our churches, in our homes, in our workplaces? And so if you can, I want you to turn to Acts 2, and it'll be important that you have it in front of you. So we'll we'll have it on the screen, but pull up a phone or or a Bible. And the theme that we're looking at today is how did the early church 
worship. What were the ways that they worshiped God together? So as I read this over you, think to yourself, what are elements of their worship? We're going to be in Acts 2, starting in verse 42. This is the early church, right after Peter's beautiful sermon. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So if I were to ask you the question, what is worship, where would your mind go? It would probably really quickly go to a song, right? Like you might think of Corey Asbury's Reckless Love of God, which is such a great, beautiful song. I was listening to it this morning. You might think of your favorite hymn or your favorite song, and that is not a bad thing. Worship is music. What we just did together is worship. But worship is also much more than just singing to God. If we're going to define worship for the purposes of our sermon, think of it like this. It's an old English term that just means worship. Like, what do you find in your life as worthy? What do you value in your life? And so we can just say simply, very basically, that worship is treasuring God, treasuring God above all else, giving to him your affections, your thoughts, your desires. You are treasuring God above all else. And if we look at the Acts 2 community, what we get in the story is a very interesting shift. See, up until this part in Acts, we are just given very specific events. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. But then in our text, there's a shift of, here's who these people were. It's not a specific description of an event. It is their lifestyle being described. Here's what they did. Who's, here is who they became. And so the very first thing, if you look in the text, the very first thing that it says that the early church did in their worship together is what? is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Everybody say apostles' teaching. Beautiful, you're with me. The apostles' teaching is essentially what we call the New Testament. This is our scriptures, the 27 books that we value. And it says quite literally there that they attached themselves to the word of God, that for them, the defining marker, what made them get together and worship was opening the word together. It's how they wanted to be known. One commentator put it this way. We may surmise that the earliest converts desired to be encouraged in their faith, but also to identify with the public preaching of the gospel as an act of testimony to its truthfulness. What that commentator is saying is that what the early Christian church wanted to do to show that the scriptures were valuable and that they were true is they wanted to come together and huddle around them to say, these have God's very instructions for us, that the word of life is contained in them. And so if the early church thought that the apostles' teaching the New Testament was so important, I love to just take stock in the room and ask us a question that I was like, what is our relationship with the Bible? Now, this is a safe space, and, and you're in church, and so you're most likely going to say, I love the Bible. Like, I'm here. I'm, I love the Bible. And 
I would say, for the most part, in my ministry experience, almost everybody that I know, believer or not, enjoys the Bible. Would say, yeah, no, there's some solid teaching. It's got some respectable claims. I mean, I'd agree with it, but it's overall okay. Which is more and more the kind of ethic of our generation. That slowly and slowly, our generation, the people in this room, we are becoming the most biblically illiterate group in modern American history. One researcher who wanted to study Americans' relationship with the Bible, he put all of his kind of research in one line. This is what he said. Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. And so I wanted just to read, I'm going I'm to share these, and you're going to be tempted to think I'm making fun of someone. or another. I just think these are somewhat hilarious, but also helpful for how we understand uh, the Bible today. I want to read you some kind of findings that the Pew Research Center found about how people understand the Bible. So 82% of Americans think that God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. One poll found that 12% of adults believe Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. <laughs> a survey of, of graduating seniors in high school revealed that 50% of them thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. And in another one, this, one's insane, this, one, this one is insane, one poll indicated that over 23% of adults believe that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. Man, okay, now, that if you're in this room and you thought any one of those, I love you, you're accepted, do not feel any shame. I'm just saying we are becoming a culture that is aware of the Bible, respects the Bible, but is not familiar with it at all. And that's really, really dangerous. Why? Because, as someone once told me when I was like in eighth grade, if God's word is not in you, someone else's is. Right? And so we have to be people who are familiar with God's voice to know what God is like. If we don't know what God is like, our worship will be askewed very quickly. And when we spend time in God's word, if we read the Bible we become more familiar to his voice, to his will, to his desires, to his holiness. We start to know God in a way that helps us worship him correctly. Let me just, well, and the opposite is also true. When we don't do that, our worship can get off track very quickly. When we don't know who God is, it is very hard to worship him. As Thomas Aquinas once said, what is unknown cannot be loved. Let me just give you an example. It was my wife's birthday this last week. And let's say I called her during the workday. And I said, Sarah, I love you. I cannot wait to go to dinner tonight and just to stare into your beautiful green eyes and look at your beautiful blonde hair. Now, most of you don't know my wife. So you're like, that is very sweet. But my wife does not have green eyes. And she does not have blonde hair. And you know what her response is not going to be? It's not going to be, well, you tried. It's close enough. No, I am going to be sleeping on the streets of Bedford-Stuyvesant tonight. <laughs> and look at me, look at me. How much more so with your creator? Because here's the reality. That when you have a correct relationship with God's word, it leads to correct doctrine, correct knowledge of God, which leads to correct affections for God, which leads to correct worship of God. 
So when you are immersed in his word, you become familiar with God in only a way that the word can reveal. So here's my point. We need to worship God by reading his word. And many of you will be tempted to go from here with a case of the shoulds. I should read the Bible. I should do this. And I want you to read the Bible. I want you to strive to do that. But also, we are given each other that really the normal context in the New Testament is people reading scripture together. That they see this time together as their time in the word with God, being with God. And so a challenge I just want to give you is find someone that you know or trust and say, will you read scripture with me? Make it a common question for you after how are you doing to say, what are you reading in scripture and what is God teaching you? Because when we are in the word together, we have the same foundation for how we understand God. When we cling to God's word and the apostles' teaching. And so the goal isn't perfection, right? You can read the Bible every day and still be confused about God. But the goal is to do it together. And that's why God gave us each other, to help us, to correct us, to say that's not what God says. This is what he says. And when you become familiar with God, you will be able to spot out lies and untruths like that. I've seen so many people just get straight away from the faith because of what someone said on YouTube or a comment here or they're experiencing trauma in their life and they think it's from God, when if you just read his word, you'd be familiar with him and you know his will, you know his character, and you would not be dismayed. I'll give you an example or an analogy, if you will. Uh, In high school, I had a pretty serious concussion from playing football. Uh, I was so serious that I had to be hospitalized, that I had internal bleeding in my head, and There was, it was a, I remember very limited stuff, but it was a very scary time. And as I was leaving the hospital, the doctor said to my mom, like, hey, you know, for three weeks, he can't go to school, he can't read books, can't do homework, all of which were not a problem at all for me. Um, (laughs) It was like, you can't stimulate his brain, okay? And she said, but, you know, you need to watch him for things that are out of character. Because if you see too many, you need to come back. And so my mom started to, to watch over me. And I would have these moments where I'd go to the sink and I would turn on the water and I would forget why I was there and I would turn around and walk away leaving the water running. And I could see on my mom's face that I did something wrong but I didn't know what it was. And I had this moment where I was eating cereal and I asked for a spoon but I already had one. And my mom very calmly tried to tell me that I, that I already had one but I could see on her face that I was not being myself. But in that moment, I felt so safe to be with my mom because she could tell when I was not being myself. And when you read scripture, that will be your relationship with God. When you are tempted to blame God for things that he did not do, you will say, I know God, that is not what he does. So when you are familiar with his word, you are familiar with him and his will. Amen. Now, Let's go to my second point. When we talk about the book of Acts, the book of Acts is the book about the Holy Spirit. That is the foundation of this book. It is when the Holy Spirit, which has always existed, comes down and dwells in God's people. There's this beautiful moment in Pentecost where Peter is preaching the sermon, and this moment the Holy Spirit comes down and it fills the people in the room. I mean, if I could give money to be there, I would have loved to be there, but this is what happens. I want you to read it. And they were all filled, this is the people listening to Peter's sermon, with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came down together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own languages. Now, what is so fascinating here is you have what is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. For Bible nerds, if you go to Genesis 11, you see God's people trying to come together to be like God in a very deceiving way. And so God confuses them and disperses them by sending down languages to confuse them. But in the Pentecost sermon, what God does is he makes them like God by giving them the Holy Spirit and then gives them languages, tongues, not to disperse them, but to bring them together. It is God's people coming together. And that's interesting and cool. But the point that I want you to see is that the Holy Spirit is the predominant thing you need to be looking for in the book of Acts. And so when we read that section of scripture in Acts 2.42, and we see what are the defining markers of the early church's worship, it doesn't say the Holy Spirit directly in terms of what they were doing, but the Holy Spirit is the fruit of all of their worship. That we have to speak about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit wasn't just a part of their worship in Acts 2. It enabled their worship. And so I want to just talk for a second about the Holy Spirit. Can I do that? Okay. Now, when I bring up the Holy Spirit, depending on where you come from, it can get pretty awkward pretty quickly, right? And I grew up in a tradition that thought instruments were the devil, but I also went to like speaking in tongues, revival, prayer nights, I've been in like both camps, okay? So I'm very, I feel at home with both. So wherever you stand, I'm with you. I love you. Um, let me give you a little bit, just, just to engage you a little bit, I want to give you a little bit of what we call seminary trash talk. That behind the rooms, how, how, how the pastors poke fun at both sides. So there's group A. We might call this group the, the charismatic. They're very expressive. Love this group. Many group, many people are in my church, I feel like I relate to a lot of them. But for them, they love the Holy Spirit. Very attuned to the Spirit's moving. They are very sensitive to the Holy Spirit. They are in tune with the Holy Spirit. Now, the trash talk, you can't tell them that I told you this. The trash talk is that for the charismatics, it's all about the experience. No truth, one experience more than they want truth. But then you have group B. We'll call this not charismatics. They play a very conservative Worship, the hands never go above the hip, right here, (laughs) 24-7. This group is cautious, if not outright suspicious, of any acts of the Holy Spirit. Now, the trash talk for them, this one's harsh. I did not tell you. These are just my friends who say this. (laughs) Trash talk to them is, if the Holy Spirit would disappear, it would take them three months to notice. That is just not right. Who would do? That's terrible. Okay. Now, why do I say that? Just to give you a little bit, you know, in case you're one of those conversations, you play that card, it'd be great. But the reason why I bring that up is because when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we tend to think about either extreme. And I would say the extreme of those are not the point. That we don't want to be a kind of people that is suspicious of the Holy Spirit. And we don't want to be a kind of people where truth does not matter. We want to be a people that merges both together to say that we desire the Holy Spirit to be alive and active and with accordance of the word of God. Because here's the reality. For many of us, we are sophisticated Westerners. We don't want to look foolish. And so talking about the Holy Spirit can be very uncomfortable for us. And so we just rather forget it. But as Francis Chan put it, and I couldn't put it better myself, when we forget about the Spirit, we are really forgetting God. 
So let us be a people that follows the Acts 2 model and not only understands the Holy Spirit, not only can articulate what the Holy Spirit is, but fully believes of its work in our life. So here's how we do that. The first thing we want to do is we want to be reliant on the Holy Spirit. That is Christian language. What does it mean to rely on the Holy Spirit? Well, let me just try to give it to you in a very practical way of what it means how we can rely on the Holy Spirit personally. So here's the first thing. If you are a believer in Jesus, what we would say is that the Holy Spirit literally dwells within you, that God's presence is no longer in these walls. It is within you. And so when we go back to our first question, the beginning of the sermon, we say, where is God? If you're a believer, quite literally, within and among you. So the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that we already have the Holy Spirit. But what we need to think about is are we living lives that are conducive for the Holy Spirit to thrive within us? Do we live our lives in a way that would allow us to rely on the Holy Spirit? Which means we need to have a conversation about holiness. That if all of us have the Holy Spirit, but very few of us feel its conviction and its nudging in our life, we need to ask, how are we living? Are we living in a godly way that allows for the Spirit to convict us, to guide us, to keep in step with it? And so a conversation that we need to have is, are there habits or behaviors in my life that quench the Holy Spirit? Is there language? Is it drinking? Is it content? I mean, just, just this week, one of my favorite movies made it to Netflix, and I was so pumped to watch it. I haven't watched it in years, and I, I turned it on, and pretty quickly, I felt this nudge of like, I don't think I should be watching this content. But I love this movie. And I just felt from the Holy Spirit that, hey, either this thrives or I thrive. You gotta pick one. This is not conducive to the life of a believer. And a helpful analogy, I think about the story of Charles Blondin. In 1859, he was a tightrope walker. And he wanted to do kind of the biggest event ever, which is he wanted to tightrope walk across the Niagara Falls. And so like, I think 20,000 people showed up. And so he, one day, he, he walks all the way across it, um, no problem. And so he, then he grabs a giant 1859 camera, which was like the size of, I don't even know, like a house probably, and walks across the tire rope, and everyone's, you know, so cool. Third time, he does it with a, a wheelbarrow. And then he tells the whole crowd, he says, if you want to see a real show, come back out tomorrow. I'm going to show you a real show. So sure enough, 20,000 people show up. And they don't know what he's going to do. And at the last minute, he grabs his manager, Harry Colcord. And he says, I'm taking you with me across. And his manager's like, no, no, no. And he's like, yep, we're going. So Harry Colcord gets on there, and he's, he's terrified. And it's rainy a little bit, and Harry's not used to this. And so halfway through, when, when they start to weave a little bit, Harry's trying, he's tensing up, trying to make sure they stay on the rope. And at one point, they start slipping. And Charles Blondin says this to him. He says, look up, Harry. You are no longer Colcord. You are Blondin. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we will both go to our death. And this is a great analogy for the Holy Spirit. That too many of us are trying to balance ourselves. 
we are not swaying or keeping in step with the Spirit. We would rather do it ourselves because we know best. But we have to ask ourselves, are we staying in step with the Spirit? Are we mind, body, and spirit with the Holy Spirit saying, you guide me, you lead me, I trust you. So here's just some quick questions that we can ask ourselves to see if we are living a life conducive for the Spirit. The first one is, do we feel conviction? When's the last time we said no or yes to something because the Holy Spirit said we ought not to or we ought to? Do we ask for an awareness of the Holy Spirit? When's the last time you were about to make a big decision, but you had to pause and say, Spirit, I need you to guide me. I need you to lead me. You know what is best for me. And one that is just helpful for me, when's the last time I said no to something because I know the Holy Spirit would not want me to do it? Just helpful questions to see if we are living a life conducive for the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, there, no one's going to applaud you for living a godly life. It is not cool. As one author put it, the world provides no cheerleaders on the pathway to godliness. And that is true. But when you are walking in step with the Spirit, man, you will be feeling like you're floating on cloud nine. Because living within God's will for your life is better than anything the world has to offer. Okay, very quickly. So that's how you do it individually, corporately. How do we worship in the Spirit? Well, we need to see our gathering time as a time to where it helps us reorient us to an awareness of the Holy Spirit. The reason why you come back here every Sunday and read from the same book every single week of your life is because you need it. Amen? Amen. So we want to come to a place where we are reminded of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. So this is what we do. We sing music to God and to each other. We sing theology to each other to remind each other this is how good our God is. And it reminds us and our brothers and sisters, and we sing it to God. Then we preach the word of God. We are making sure we are on the same page about who God is and his work in our life. And then we pray. Every Sunday, you have people up here that are willing to pray for you. On behalf of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will intercede for you to the Father. King David would have been mind blown that the Holy Spirit would intercede for you. And we get to do that together. And so every week, we're not coming here just to talk about offering or just to sing some songs or just to hear about the Bible. We are coming here to say, Lord, reorient my mind and my heart to what the Spirit is doing in me and the life of our church and my brothers and sisters. Okay, final point. Now, when we talk about these two elements, the Word and the Spirit, we are saying that, hey, as a church, as a city on a hill, we want to be a Word and Spirit church. The defining markers of the worship of the Acts 2 community was the Word and the Spirit. And we want to be a Word and Spirit church. And this is indeed what Jesus said would be true of his people. In John 4, the woman at the well, the woman is confused about the Messiah, and he goes to clarify what his people will look like when he ascends. He says this, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is what we're talking about when we talk about the word and the spirit. This is what Jesus wants for his people. But look, we cannot engage God in the word and engage God in the spirit without acknowledging that these are all effects of the gospel. That the only reason we can access God in the Word 
is because the word became flesh. That is, one translator of John 1.14 said, the word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. Or as in Philippians 2, when it says, though God had, or though Jesus had equality with God, he did not count it as something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself for us. So we can get to know God through the word because God became flesh. The word became flesh for us. And we get to have the spirit of God because when Jesus was on the cross paying the price for our sins, this is what happened. And Jesus cried again with a loud voice and he gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit so you could have the Holy Spirit. When we talk about a word and spirit church, we are saying we get to do these things because of the gospel. Being a word and spirit truth says I want to partake in the good gifts of God that the, the word became flesh, that God gave up his spirit, and now we get to live out the gospel, getting to know God through his word and worshiping him through the spirit. When trying to think of, of how to close this sermon this week, I kept coming back to the prodigal son story. And if you don't know it, a very famous story in Luke 15 where there's, this two, there's two sons, and the younger one says to his dad, I want all my inheritance. I wish you were dead. Give me my money. I'm out. He takes his money and he goes and he spends it all and he realizes his mistake. Goes back to his dad. Instead of his dad getting mad at him, the dad receives him, throws a party for him, so happy he's home. And the older son, who never did anything wrong, goes to his dad and says, Dad, you gave all of the good things, everything to the one who squandered it. I haven't done anything against you. And the father says this line that is so peculiar, so odd, often missed. He says, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. You see, to the son, he said, what you didn't realize when you were asking, why didn't I have your favor? Why didn't I have your love? Why didn't I have your gift? He says, what you didn't realize is you always did. You just needed to be aware of it. And when we return to the question of, where is God? I think the answer is the same. That when you ask the question in your own life, where is God in my life? The answer is, he has always been there. He is there, and he is always going to be. You only need to realize it. And one of the best ways you can realize it in your life is engaging with him in the word and in the spirit. So let us do that as we continue in song. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, thank you for this time as we gather as a church and we give you praise and we say thank you that we get to worship you in the word and in the spirit. That you were so kind to us that you gave us your son so that we could be here today. We ask that you would grow us as a church, that you would help us as a church to be more and more like the image of your son. God, we ask that as we go into this time where we begin to sing praise to you, that you would move in our hearts. You would help us with the next step we need to do. God, we give this time to you. It's your name we pray. Amen.